The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. Well, Merry Christmas to you. All right. It's wonderful to see you here on this uh, Christmas Sunday morning. Uh, we get to see each other twice this weekend. Isn't that phenomenal? Yeah. You can clap. It's okay. We get to see each other. Yeah. Well, Merry Christmas. It's not, it's not very frequent for us to be able to get together on Christmas Day and worship, but what a joy it is today to be together in the Lord's house to celebrate the birth of Jesus, our King. I trust that you've already this morning celebrated some with your family, and those celebrations, I'm sure, will continue throughout the afternoon, but we have the privilege of worship this morning, and so I'm glad that you're here with us to do that. Uh, our worship this morning will look a little different than it does on a normal, any given, uh, normal given Sunday. Uh, we'll, we'll be moving up and down a little bit. We'll sing some songs together. Uh, exploring the sort of the main themes of the Christmas season, hope and joy and peace and love. And we'll sing songs that reflect those themes. I'll be up and down sharing some thoughts about those themes from God's Word, and we'll just worship in a little different way this morning. Keep it moving. We've got lots of kiddos with us in here this morning, and uh, so we want to keep it moving for parents particularly and for you, just a little something different. So I hope you've come ready to sing this morning and ready to just reflect on a a well-known portion of Scripture, some well-known truths that we celebrate together on Christmas Sunday morning. So let's do that together as we pray. Lord Jesus, you are our featured attraction this morning. It is your birthday. The Word who was in the beginning, as we just sang, has now in flesh appeared. You, the God of all creation, stepping out of heaven, being born as a baby, in a little village, in an out-of-the-way out place, to a little unknown couple, largely unknown to the world that was bustling around at the time, you, God, came to be with us. And we celebrate you this morning, Lord Jesus, not just for your coming, but for your coming and for your living and for your dying in our place. We celebrate you this morning, Jesus, and we worship you and exalt your holy name. For it's in your name we pray. Amen. Our first song is going to be a song of hope. Angels from the realms of glory. The angels came and had a message for the shepherds, and they sang and proclaimed the Messiah's birth. What message of hope could be more hopeful than that? Would you stand with us and sing Angels from the Realms of Glory? Angels from the realms of glory, we will fly o'er all the earth. Ye who sang creation story, now proclaim Messiah's birth. Come and worship, come and worship, worship Christ the newborn In the fields abiding, watching o'er your flocks by night. God with us is now residing, yonder shines the infant light. Come. 
chapter 7, verse 14, the prophet writes, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. If you read your Old Testament, you'll find that the hope of Israel was that God would once again dwell with his people. One of, the, one of the primary characteristics of Israel as the people of God was that God uniquely dwelt among his people in a way that he didn't dwell among other people. He would dwell with them in a very unique way. We saw this from the very beginning, from the calling and establishing of Israel. Do you recall the exodus from Egypt where God's people are being led out of Egypt? out of slavery to the promised land. And right in front of the caravan is the presence of the Lord, God dwelling among his people, right? And a pillar of, of light or cloud by day and fire by night. It was the presence of the Lord with his people. If you've lived a few pages over in your Old Testament to Exodus chapter 29 and you read about the establishing and the building of the tabernacle where God's people would worship, we find the Lord saying this, Beginning in verse 45, I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God and they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them for I'm the Lord their God. God dwelt among his people. If you flipped a few pages over to Second Chronicles chapter 7 and you see the construction of the temple in the Old Testament, Here's what we find happening. As soon as Solomon finishes his prayer of dedication, we're told that fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And the priests could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. When all the people saw of Israel saw the fire come down and the glory of the Lord on the temple, they bowed down on their faces or with their faces to the ground on the pavement, and they worshiped, and they gave thanks to the Lord, saying, for he's good, 
His steadfast love endures forever. The luminous sort of manifestation of the presence of God among his people was a hallmark of the nation of Israel and the people of God. It was a symbol of God literally dwelling in the midst of his people. But the sad story of the Old Testament is that God's people consistently rebelled and they consistently worshiped false gods. And God patiently called them back. He, he patiently wooed them back to himself, back to faith and back to obedience. But God's patience has its limits. And we get to the book of Ezekiel chapter 9. And we see one of the saddest passages in all of the Old Testament. We see the glory of God departing from the temple. A, a visible manifestation of the God who had dwelled among his people leaving his people. It culminates in Ezekiel chapter 11, verse 23, when we see these words, and the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and it stood on the mountain that's on the east side of the city. The glory of the Lord that had once filled the temple, the symbol of God's presence dwelling among the people had left the temple, had left the city and they were on their own. From that time on for generations, Israel's hope was that God would once again return and dwell among his people. And they prayed for that and they longed for that. That was their hope. And then a small out-of-the-way village in Bethlehem with hardly anyone noticing, God once again came to dwell with his people. In Luke chapter 2, verse 9, it's stated so simply, an angel of the Lord appeared to the shepherds and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were filled with great fear. The glory of the Lord that once filled the temple, that once filled the tabernacle, that once led the people out of Egypt marks the birth of Christ. God has once again come to dwell among his people, but this time he hasn't come in a luminous cloud. This time he's come as a baby with flesh and with blood. A baby who would grow. A baby who would become a man, who would live among them, who would teach them, who would do miracles, who would call them to faith and trust in him as God in human flesh. But the sad story is, Israel once again rejects her Messiah. The God who's come to be with them again, their hope, what they've longed for, they rejected. However, not everyone rejected him, did they? For everyone who trusted in him for salvation, they became his new people, the church. You and I are a part of that new people of God. And the Bible tells us at Pentecost, something remarkable happens. After Jesus' death and resurrection, he gives us the Holy Spirit. And now as the new people of God, we don't have to go to a temple where we find the presence of the Lord. We become the very temple of the Holy Spirit, God dwelling with his people dwelling in us. 
Pastor Joe talked about that last night. But as Christians, that's not the end of the story for us, is it? Because just as Israel hoped in God returning to be among his people, we as Christians look to the future too, don't we? We have a hope in the fact that God will return again in human flesh, that Christ will come back. Zechariah chapter 14, verse 4 describes that day. He says, on that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east. Incidentally, that's where the glory of the God de departed the temple and landed. It's there that he'll return. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley, so that one half of the mountain shall move northward and the other half southward. And then in verse 9 he says, And the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day the Lord will be one, and his name will be one. Today, we celebrate the incarnation of Christ, God coming to dwell among his people once again. And today we experience the indwelling of the Holy Spirit as the people of God, his church. But even as those things are our present reality, we look to the future with hope. Hope that Christ will return and once again dwell among his people physically and we'll see him face to face. That, my friends, is the hope of Christmas. Let's stand together and sing. Angels, we have heard on high, love and worship are intimately connected. And, uh, and, and this song is such a song of love to the God who is most high. So sing out, angels, we have heard on, with us, on high with us. we have heard on high, sweetly singing o'er the plains, and the mountains in reply, echoing their joyous strains. Come adore on bending knee, Christ. 
propitiation for our sins. In 1817, F.M. Lehman wrote a song called The Love of God, some of the most beautiful lyrics ever written. The song begins with the first verse that says this, the love of God is greater far than tongue or pen can ever tell. It goes beyond the highest star and reaches to the lowest hell. The guilty pair bowed down with care. God gave his son to win. His erring child he reconciled. And he pardoned from his sin. The final stanza of the song is perhaps the most well-known. He writes these words. He says, could we with ink the ocean fill and were the skies of parchment made were every stalk on earth a quill and every man ascribed by trade to write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry. Nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. Such beautiful lyrics in which layman attempts to describe the incomprehensible, indescribable, magnificent love of God. The Bible, cover to cover, declares the love of God. The Old Testament pronounces this refrain over and over and over again. We find in Psalm 85, 16, But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Just in the Old Testament alone, God is described as a God of steadfast love over 181 times. 
If you flipped over to the New Testament, the evidence of God's love is a refrain that continues to just accumulate and accumulate page after page. In fact, in 1 John chapter 4, John states it as simply and succinctly as possible when he simply says, God is love. God is love. He embodies love. He defines love. He displays for us what love is. There is no greater example in all of Scripture, though, of the magnificent, incomprehensible love of God than the giving of his son to be a propitiation for our sins. The New Testament is absolutely clear on the fact that the reason Jesus was born is because God loved us. John 3.16 begins, For God so loved the world, that he gave his only son. The absolutely astounding thing about that simple truth is that he didn't give us his son as a response to our love for him. He gave us his son in spite of our lack of love for him. John elaborates on that point in 1 John chapter 4, verse 10, when he simply says this, in this is love, not that we've loved God but that he loved us and he gave us his son. It's a remarkable truth that God's love for us is so extensive that even our rebellion doesn't thwart it. That in spite of the thousands of ways that you and I have rebelled and pursued other loves, he still loves us. It's amazing. In spite of all that, he gave his son, the second person of the Trinity, to come to us, to be born of Mary and Joseph in Bethlehem, to live a perfect life that showed us what love looks like in action. He gave his son to die on a Roman cross to pay the price for our sin, that we might be forgiven, that we might be reconciled to him, that we might be adopted into his family. Who can fathom a love like that? There's nothing in all of creation or human history like it. His love for us is completely unique. There is no other kind of love that is like it. It's completely unlike any human expression of love. The Bible tells us that his love is unique in that he loved us first, before we could ever love him. His love wasn't a response to how we're treating him. It wasn't even dependent upon how we treat him. His love was expressed to us regardless of how we might respond to it. He loved us first. He loved us when we were completely unlovable. In fact, the Bible declares he loved us when we hated him. What kind of love is this? We hadn't earned his love. We didn't deserve his love. We were rebels against his will, and yet he loved us anyway. He loved us first. He loved us when we were completely unlovable. His love for us is unrequited. Simply stated, that means that God loved us regardless of how we might respond to his love. His love for us doesn't depend upon us loving him back in like fashion. He doesn't say, I love you as long as you love me in return. His love is, in fact, independent of any return. His love for us is unconditional. It isn't based upon how we treat him. 
It isn't affected by how we sin against him. It forgives and it endures and it's not based on any other conditions. It's not conditioned upon our ability to obey. It isn't conditioned upon our performance and godliness. His love is unconditional. And his love is self-giving. It's a love that sacrifices for our benefit. It's a love that, that, that moved him to give his one and only son for us. It's a love that's completely absence of any self-serving. It only embodies self-giving. What a remarkable love that is that God has for us. To love us first. To love us when we're unlovable. To love us regardless of whether we would return that love and to give us a love that has no conditions placed upon it, only a self-giving, sacrificial kind of love. How marvelous, how inconceivable, how glorious is that kind of love. Whatever your concept of God is this morning, whatever first thoughts you have about him when you think of him, if it isn't driven by a very clear view of his matchless love, then your view of God is distorted in the wrong direction. He is a God of steadfast love. John follows up that declaration of the Father's amazing love with this statement in verse 11 of 1 John chapter 4. He says, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Oh, friends, don't let the Hallmark Channel define what love is for you this Christmas season. Look at the manger, the Son of God, given by our Heavenly Father because of divine love for you. Let that set the standard for how you love other people today, this week, and throughout this next year. Oh, that this Christmas and beyond, we would be the kind of people that reflect that kind of love to others around us. If we do it, people will notice and they'll want to hear about the God we serve who loved us like that. The love of God is incomprehensible. Praise the Lord for his remarkable love. Let's stand and sing. song, O Little Town of Bethlehem, actually seems a little different to me this year because this year I visited Israel and I actually got to visit Bethlehem itself and it is not a small, quiet town anymore. It's a big town, it's a big city. And one of the other things that's amazing about it is that it's not what you think it is. It's an Arab town now. It's not a Jewish town. And when I walked those streets and I saw uh, all the people it kind of seemed in a certain strange way a bit fitting because Jesus didn't just come for the Jew. He came for the whole world. And those people, those Arabs who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ, uh, they, they are also the recipients of God's peace. So the message of peace is a, is a, is a message of peace for everyone. Peace between mankind and God. Not just peace between the Jew and God. He came for the whole world. So let's sing the song of peace, a little town of Bethlehem.
in chapter 9, verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. The government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. In Luke chapter 4, excuse me, chapter 2, verse 14, we read these words. Spoken by angels, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he's pleased. The world in which you and I live is a broken world that's full of chaos and confusion and corruption and conflict. It's anything but a world at peace. 
All you have to do is open up your news app on your device and you see the evidence of that reality. Ask anyone this morning who's a believer in Ukraine if we're living at a world in peace. Ask any believer among our brothers and sisters in China this morning if we live in a world at peace as they worship in secret and fear for their lives. Our world is filled with wars and crime, natural disasters, and persecution of a thousand different kinds. It's a very, very broken world that's been corrupted in every way by human sin. It's really, though, not so different from the world into which Christ was born. It, too, was a world in chaos and confusion and conflict and corruption. The Bible tells us that when Jesus was born, the ruler of Judea was an egotistical, generally despicable leader called Herod, who ruled with a merciless hand. He was born into a culture that was literally rife with racism and sexism and slavery and fraud all around. The very story of the birth of Christ can't be told in full without talking about the horrendous atrocity that took place when somewhere in the neighborhood of 20 little boys two years old and under were ripped out of their families' homes and slaughtered because of the jealousy of a ruler. I can't imagine a more heartbreaking atrocity for a village to endure. It isn't a scene that speaks of heavenly peace. Yet, Isaiah tells us that the coming of the Messiah would be a prince of peace. And the angel declares to the shepherds that his coming, this prince of peace, is going to bring peace on earth. How does this make sense at all against the backdrop of human history in the world since then? Well, the answer lies in understanding exactly what kind of peace it is that this prince of peace would be a, a prince of. The answer is understanding exactly what kind of peace on earth he came to bring. And the kind of peace, the kind of peace that he came to bring that we see in scripture is so much more than just the absence of chaos and conflict. In fact, the primary meaning of peace when we're speaking of the peace that Christ brings is not peace among men. It's peace between men and God. The coming of the Messiah would not end chaos and conflict in the world immediately. It would, however, provide a much more profound and lasting kind of peace. You see, the Bible from start to finish declares to us that since sin entered humanity's experience in the Garden of Eden, human beings have been at war with God. Every human being who's born into this world becomes both by birth and nature and also by choice a sinner who is in rebellion against his creator or her creator. And that sin separates us from him. It positions us as enemies. We are at war with God. Paul writes in Romans chapter 5 verse 8 and following these words, but God shows his love for us. 
and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more now that we're reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. In the midst of that glorious passage about reconciliation, he reminds us that before we're reconciled to God, we were his enemies. We were enemies who were at war because of our sin. We're not at peace with him. In spite of the fact that most people in the world around you that you and I sort of rub shoulders with in the lost world probably look at themselves and think in terms of God, hey, I'm pretty good with God. We're okay. The reality is they're not okay. They're at war, whether they know it or not. No human being is neutral in the war. Jesus said, you're either for me or you're against me. And because of our sin and rebellion and because of the war which we've waged against God, the Bible declares that we are under a death sentence, destined to pay the wages for our sin. Unless something happens in our life to change our status, to help us, what will happen to every human being is we will die as God's enemies and spend an eternity paying the price for our rebellion. That is the condition of every human being in the world apart from Christ. At war with God. And that's what makes the coming of the Prince of Peace such wonderful news. That's what makes it glorious good news of the gospel that he came to make a way for God's enemies to become God's friends. For people who are at war with God to be reconciled to him, to experience peace with God. The baby born in Bethlehem would die an atoning death for us. So that through faith in him, people like us, rebels who were at war with God, can make peace with him. Romans chapter 5, verse 1, Paul writes, Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The kind of peace that Christ came to bring is that kind of peace. Peace with God. And the marvelous thing is, when you and I come to know Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, and we lay down our arms and Peace is made with God through the sacrifice of Christ. There's an internal peace that begins to fill our hearts that comes also from Christ. A subjective sort of experiential peace that we experience in the midst of all of the chaos and corruption and confusion around us. When we have peace with God, we become people who are at peace in the world, even though peace doesn't exist around us. The Greek lexicon, one of them, defines peace this way. It says it's the the tranquil state of the soul, assured of its salvation through Christ. And fearing nothing from God, it's content with its earthly lot of whatever sort that is. That's the kind of peace that fills the heart of those who are at peace with God. It's the kind of peace that in action looks like a, a calm assurance in the midst of all sorts of troubling circumstances. It's the kind of peace that looks like a a selfless trust in a God who is sovereign. It's the kind of peace that looks like courage in response 
to the troubling circumstances that swirl around. It's the peace of heart that comes from being at peace with God. It looks like Daniel, who kneels before his window in the Old Testament to pray, even though praying has been outlawed by the king and the threat of death hangs over his head. But he's a man at peace. It looks like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who say to the king, even if God doesn't save us when you throw us in the fire, we won't bow down to your idol. It's the kind of peace that David has in mind when he says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil because you're with me. Jesus Christ is the Prince of Peace. He comes to us in Bethlehem. He dies on a Roman cross for our sins to make peace between us and God the Father. And he says to us in the midst of all that, don't let your hearts be troubled. Peace I leave you. My peace I give to you. Friends, the world around us gives us a thousand reasons to live with a troubled heart. But the Prince of Peace gives us a hundred thousand better reasons to be people who live a life that's at peace. Because the most important relationship in our experience is settled. We have peace with God through Christ. May the peace of God fill you today and every day. Praise God for the peace that comes through Christ. Let's sing together one more song. Let's stand. The last theme is joy, which there's no better song for the song for the theme of joy than joy to the world. Lift up your voices with us.
Luke 2, verse 10, and the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy. That will be for all the people. Throughout the biblical narrative of Jesus' birth, joy literally is oozing from every page of the story. Nearly every episode exudes for us incredible joy. We see the angels in heaven rejoicing with great news, or good news of great joy. We see Zechariah and Elizabeth, this barren old couple, giving birth to a son out of nowhere with a smile on their face and joy flowing from their hearts. We're told that the Magi see a star in the east and they rejoice with great joy. The shepherds who see the angels and then see Jesus, we're told, are glorifying God and they're praising him from joy. But perhaps nobody in the Christmas story experienced the joy of Christmas more than Mary, the mother of Jesus. The angel of the Lord appears to her and delivers to her this wonderful news that she has been chosen to bear the Son of God. Not just any son, but the Messiah, the one who would sit on David's throne. God confirms this in a visit with her cousin Elizabeth, who is also pregnant, and they rejoice with great joy. Mary's joy is so overflowing in her heart that it expresses itself in a song of worship that we find in Luke chapter 1, verse 46. We call it sometimes the Magnificat. And Mary begins her song this way. My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he's looked upon the humble estate of his servant. Behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed, for he who is mighty has done great things for me in his holy name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. For Mary, the God who was far away from her and known only through his word, has now come near to her, and she has seen him like never before. She sees really in in, in crystal clarity his plan of redemption far more clearly. She sees her place in that plan more clearly. She sees the beauty of the Messiah and his coming more clearly. More clearly she sees what he will accomplish in the future and the ancient, ancient promises of God that are now being fulfilled and she's a part of the story. All of that brings joy to her heart and she's absolutely blown away by the wonder of it all. Her soul overflows with joy. And that joy is expressed in worship. Now that she's seen all of this, she can't help but want to share it with other people. And so she expresses what she's seen of God in a song to be sung. True worship flows from a heart that is overjoyed at what God has done. And Mary was overwhelmed by the mercy and the kindness of God toward her. But it's not just the mercy and kindness of God in choosing her that she's rejoicing over. It is the mercy and kindness of God in saving her that she's rejoicing over. You see, it's the saving work of God that drives Mary to worship out of pure joy. In verse 47, she says, My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. She knew that this child in her womb would be called Jesus, which simply means God saves. 
He hadn't just come to save other people. He had come to save her. And like every other human in all of creation, Mary needed a savior. And in her womb, God had provided one. Jesus, the Messiah. Friends, when a person truly understands the implications of being lost, they'll never get over the fact that God saved them. It will drive them to praise, to thank him, to worship him. Out of a heart that is filled with joy and gratitude and wonder. When a person really comes to understand the miracle of salvation, like Mary, joy will just erupt from the soul. To live a life as a Christian that is joyless is a testimony to the world that either you don't know or you've forgotten the miracle of your salvation, that God would save you through Jesus. Mary never forgot, and her life was a testimony to that joy. As we close our time together this morning, friends, on this Christmas Sunday, I pray that we'll leave this place people whose hearts overflow with joy at the miracle of salvation. Not just that Jesus has come to save the world in a sense, but that he's come to save us in particular. That he saw fit to bring the gospel through somebody into our lives. That he saw fit to open our eyes to the beauty of it all, to the reality of our sin and to the glory of our Savior. And that he called us to faith and repentance. And that when we turned from our sin and placed our faith in him, he saved us completely. People like us who were at war with him, rebels, who had no means to save ourselves, through Jesus, he saved us. He saved us. Our souls are eternally secure in him. And whatever happens in our life in this world, the good, the bad, and everything in between, we can have joy because we know in the end Christ wins and our eternity with him is set and settled. And whatever sadness and whatever heartbreak and whatever pain we experience in this world, in light of the eternity of joy that's ahead of us, It'll seem like a, a distant memory. Be joyful, my friends. Christ has come. May our lives this Christmas and every other day be filled with joy. Our hope is anchored in a God who's with us and in a Christ who will one day return. We're loved by a God whose love is selfless and unconditional and unrequited and self-giving. Christ has made peace for us with God. And he's coming back. And one day, one day, the Christ that we celebrate from a distance here, we'll see him face to face. And our worship then will be unlike anything we could ever imagine. Oh, friends, be filled with joy today. May this Christmas day be a day of absolute joy for you and your families. Let's stand together one more time and sing a refrain of joy to the world as a fitting way to end our time of worship.
sure if you've noticed, but as we've, as we've celebrated and acknowledged Advent, sometimes these things slip by us. We are done waiting. We are through waiting. We know the truth of Jesus. He has come, and one day, just as sure as Jesus came, one day we will see our hope in person. He will arrive again. So have hope. Jesus keeps his promises, okay? He keeps his promise in Jesus in his first Advent, and he will keep it at his second Advent as well. As our blessing today, our benediction, please receive this from 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 16 and 17. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. We love you. Go in peace. Merry Christmas.